Today, we have a special episode of All Goes Mainstream and the first episode where we have co-founders on together. Today, we have the co-founders of Rally Road on to discuss how people can now invest into their passions. Chris Bruno and Rob Petrozzo grew up together, and although they may not have been best of friends then, they have combined their respective talents to form what has become one of the symbols for the financialization of all sorts of assets. Rally Road, which started as a platform to enable investors to invest into shares of classic cars that would be unattainable to many investors, has become a multi-asset investment platform that allows individual investors to invest in all sorts of exotic, rare assets at low minimums. Chris, Rob, and the team have created a leading fractional investing platform for the alternative space. They recently raised a $30 million round led by Axel, who invested in GOAT, to help propel their marketplace further. Rally has already achieved an active, engaged, and passionate user base of over 200,000 investors who invested in everything from Pele rookie cards, to classic cars, to dinosaur heads, to soon, the Declaration of Independence, or a rookie card of the United States of America, as Rally investor and Upfront Ventures partner Greg Bettinelli has called it. Chris, the co-founder and president, comes from the VC and startup worlds. He was an associate at Village Ventures before co-founding two companies, Health Guru Media, and Spotter. He's a classic car enthusiast, which ignited his interest in unlocking the asset class to individual investors. Rob, the co-founder and chief product officer, has been the creative inspiration behind Rally. He has brought his background as the in-house lead designer and creative consultant for Sony BMG, where he worked on the likes of Kanye West's Good Music imprint and as the creative director for a few startups to bring Rally's brand to life in person and in the digital world. Rally has done some really interesting things with their brand, opening up a showroom to their investors, creating and offering stock certificates to their investors, and creating exclusive merch drops, including the sweatshirt that I wore for today's podcast. Chris, Rob, and I had a fascinating conversation about how Rally built and evolved their concept from classic cars to all sorts of rare grail assets, how they got into collectibles themselves, how they've waded through complex regulatory structures to figure out how to offer these assets to the masses, how they grew up together and now have built a company that aligns with their passions, and how on earth they were able to IPO a rookie card of the United States. Thanks, Chris and Rob, for coming on the AGM podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. We're going mainstream. So, Chris, Rob, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream podcast. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Yeah, man, I appreciate uh, you having us and wearing rally merch for the show. I hope that's your everyday uniform and not just for today. <laughs> No, it, it is it is something I wear all the time, although I have to be careful about how much I wear this because this is limited edition to 50. There, there's value in this, and I, I don't want to damage this collectible too much. That was the rarest. That's the black skew, which is the one that shows up the most on eBay now, too. You have the rarest of the rare. Oh, wow. Are, yeah. are you guys going to eventually get to a point where you're starting to trade your own merch on Rally's secondary market? Yeah, we, we do that ourselves with family and friends already. So at some point, maybe it makes its way back to the platform for sure. This is great. We'll have to get into all of this, but first I, I just, I have to start here. I know this is not the beginning and we'll get back to the beginning because you have a fascinating story, but you guys IPO'd a rookie card of the United States of America. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I got to give credit to Greg Benelli and a few other people who brought that to Twitter first. 
I kind of stole it and we started running around with it in-house. But yeah, so what we have is the Declaration of Independence. So not the one that's in the rotunda that everybody recognizes as the when you're in school, you learn about the Declaration of Independence. But this is what's called a broadside. What we have is the equivalent of the first copy from July of 1776. It's the one that went back to all the colonies. So in Exeter, New Hampshire, where this copy is from, you have this one proof of what's been done in D.C. And it's read aloud in the town square by the governor or someone really notable from the town. And this is that first copy. It's the equivalent of the first edition of the Declaration of Independence called a Walsh 15 broadside. So basically everybody in America can own a piece of their country's history now. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I would say that's correct. I'm just happy you gave the credit to Greg Batnelli for that rookie card comment. I didn't want to hear that come back around. <laughs> yeah. it didn't, so. yeah, seriously, it took hold on Twitter and everyone started grabbing it, but I got to give credit where credit's due. I'll give him that that's one. That's right. I love it. I, I saw that. I was like, wow, this is awesome. What, what a great way to describe what you're doing. And, and it really does capture so many things of what Rally is doing, IPOing assets, doing grail assets or rookie cards, bringing in culture. So want to get to all of that on the podcast. But first, I think this is actually the first time we've done a, a, a two-person podcast, two founders from the same team. You have such a fascinating story, both in the evolution of Rally, but also your backgrounds. We probably need to start all the way at the beginning. You were childhood friends growing up, knew each other. We're probably really passionate about collectibles. We'd love to hear the origin story. I, I think friends is an overstatement, no, Rob? If you want to be honest about it. We different crews. And so sometimes things don't go that smoothly, but I think we grew in mutual respect and friendship over the years. That's a good way to put it. The thing was, Chris was in high school. Chris ran with the older kids and they were always smarter. They were cool kids, but we always looked at them in my grade and said, those kids are losers. That was the move. That was a cool thing to say, but it was really a projection of ourselves back then. I think that still sticks with me <laughs> to this day, but we called them the herd patrol. That was a name for the kids who weren't cool because they were always trying to shoo in on our territory a little bit. So what happened was over time, they were the really smart kids. We were the creative kids. We have mutual friends, a friend of mine named Dylan and a friend of his name, Adam, who we're all really close friends now. But they were like, you guys have so much shared DNA. You should have a conversation at some point and bury the hatchet. And that happened 15, 20 years ago and led to the business, I would say. Fair enough. I think yeah. that's right. That, that's a wonderful story. There's so many pieces in there about what you were into. So as kids, were there certain collectibles that you reach into? And maybe based on your friend groups or interests, maybe you had completely different types of collectibles that you were interested in. Maybe one of you was super interested in the Declaration of Independence. Another was interested in cars. Another was interested in football cards or basketball cards. What were the collectibles that were driving your passions at the time? For me, it was all about the cars. That's where it came from. I grew up around that. My grandfather was a mechanic. My uncle was a mechanic. My three cousins were mechanics. It was just a part of growing up was being around these things and just really enjoying learning about them and being a part of that culture. So that's where the idea came from was legitimately not buying cars in high school that you wake up five years later and you're like, well, I'm never going to buy this now because the prices were just growing and growing and growing faster than any normal income could grow. The idea was as old as that, literally 20 years ago, we were talking about this and saying, how can you get a piece of this? How can we be a part of this? How can you get deeper into these things? And it developed over time into something where careers developed and the market developed and the regulations developed. And all those things came together after a long period of time of talking about it, to making it a reality. So... For me, it's about the cars. It always was. Rob has a much more, I'd say, eclectic interest in some of these other classes than I probably do, and, and certainly in a more eclectic collection. And for me, I was always in art classes, and I went to school for art, and the idea was everyone knew art was a good investment. Cars weren't necessarily looked at that way. You always learn that it's a depreciating asset, and as soon as you drive it off the lot, you lose money. 
But then you dig deeper and you find out that there's this whole museum quality subset that has appreciated and has a huge enthusiast group around it. And it's the best quality stuff. So for me with art, the idea was that there are these million, two million, $10 million paintings. I would you know, leave school and get on the art train and go to Pearl Paint. I would go into a gallery in Soho and you're not allowed in there. When you're 17 years old, they look at you crazy. You walk in, nobody talks to you. You see all the stuff on the wall. There's no price. You don't know what's going on. And then you just walk out, feel like you have no business being there. So the idea of the access lane and the stuff that you really care about when you're younger coming full circle, we watched all that stuff get away from us in terms of prices and in terms of the attention that was on it from the media. That's when you know Chris came up with this concept and it was I have this idea for a real access lane for the things that we truly do care about. And it was all the things we talked about when we were younger. You're hitting on a theme and a trend that is so important when it comes to thinking about alts. We've talked about this in our conversations. One of your investors, Alexis Ohanian, and I have talked about this separately on another podcast we do, Community Times Capital, where educating younger people about investing can actually come through different forms. How do you think about that in the context of really investing where your interests lie? Because that's a lot of what you're getting at here. Yeah. What I would say about it is that's the point of this platform. When we were looking about making this and we were seeing some of the things happening in other alt categories, the concept of this democratization and this opening is fantastic. The execution of it isn't always as fantastic. Yeah, we see a lot of the stuff that then shows up to the retail investor, either being just wildly inappropriate for the investor or not best of best. And when we took a look back here and we looked at the asset classes we're talking about from collectibles, cars, watches, wine, baseball cards, the best of the best is what we were able to bring to market day one. And you take another step back and you say like, well, what comprehension is around this asset? You don't have to be some crazy, sophisticated, overly knowledgeable. If you're into this and you're into the community, you can be one of the best investors. That level playing field in terms of information, that level playing field in terms of caring about the asset classes, that's something that I think is pretty unique to collectibles. And it's something that was really important to us because it allowed us to put even our first deal for what it was, was a $75,000 Lotus Esprit. And it's still one of the best ones on the planet. I could assure you of that. And I think that's something that was really important to us. If we're going to do this and we're going to bring stuff to the retail investor and make sure it's something they care about, make sure it's something they could fully understand, and then make sure we're bringing best in class to the market. Yeah, you keyed in on it too, Mike. You said it. It's like, Alexis, you, the way you guys talk about this, we've always thought about it the same way that everyone's talking about it now. And a lot of people were early to it, but these to us, not to make it super topical, but they were all individual subreddits. Everything on Rally has a group that really cares about it. And you've made the point that information now is accessible in a way that Twitter's probably going to be on par with a Bloomberg terminal right now to a certain degree. The disconnection and that asymmetry doesn't really exist the way it did. If you have what was considered a small group of really knowledgeable people who go super deep on one asset or one collectible or one thing, they have the power now to really move markets in a way that they can get together and bring that idea to life and get some skin in the game in a way that now with the on-ramps that exist and all that access to information wasn't available even five or six or seven years ago. Yeah, that's such a fascinating point. Are you able to understand whether or not some of the investors on your platform, like this is the first financial asset they've ever invested in? Yeah, that was one of the earliest user surveys we ever did. And it turned out that in terms of alternative asset investing, we did a 1,000 person survey. And this was two and a half, three years ago. We got to get back to it, actually, where 85% of people that we surveyed that were on our platform, super engaged, had never invested in an alternative asset before. We included REITs and we included some of the more retail products that you would potentially have access to. And even that was a little bit foreign to them. It was a little bit different. So for them to come in 
be led by passion, but become really sophisticated investors in individual asset classes is something that I think now, if we did that survey, it would be wildly different and the numbers would be way different for sure. Well, one of the things I want to get to as we talk about this, and I know we've gotten into so much of the fun stuff here, I, I want to take a step back and go through the platform origins. But as we get further along in this conversation, I do want to get to how the platform is institutionalizing over time. And it's maybe not just individual investors and how you're thinking about bringing in individuals, but also institutional investors as well. But first, let's go back to the, the beginning of Rally and kind of the, the, the platform origins. So tell us for somebody who doesn't know about Rally or, or isn't yet wearing the merch, which they should be doing because it's great. It's great clothing as well. Much uh, you know, what is Rally and why did you start with Classic Cars as your first asset? So Rally is an investment marketplace. We take high-end appreciating assets uh, like Classic Cars, like dinosaurs, sports cards, and collectibles, and we turn them into little mini companies that people could trade the same way they do equities. That's essentially what it is. Why cars is, is actually, one, it was an asset class that we cared about, and it was one that we were interested in personally. But honestly, the reason we started there, we said day one, if this was going to work, it was going to be a multi-asset class platform. But we wanted to start in a place, and I stole this from, from Scott Galloway when I was in his class, actually. There's that heuristic, I think they call it, of, of like relevancy, differentiation, and can you own it? And those are the hurdles that we applied to our launch to say, okay, like, this is a massive enthusiast community. At that point in time, I think there was something like half a million people showing up in Arizona to watch cars sell at auction at, at Barrett-Jackson or Meekum or one of those large format places. And then you'd look at it and like there was like 500 registered bidders. So 500,000 people showing up in the audience to watch 500 people buy stuff and sell stuff, which is pretty remarkable in itself. So that's where we started. The differentiation, we opened up a showroom in Soho, and if we put some watches and wine in there, I think nobody would have looked twice. You put a Lamborghini in there with the doors up, and that's a really differentiated experience. And then can you own it? I think for us, what that meant to me was, here's an asset class with a lot of white space, where it's had the history of returns, but it's had the history of returns for such a small group of people. And it's still operated in a way where it's a lot of mom and pop shops and how do you get in the door and who do you buy from? And that's the Lamborghini guy and that's the Aston Martin guy. It's a, a cottage industry of sorts where we came in and provided a platform that started to centralize things and give away to having real value come uh, and be centralized and thought about as a marketplace. And I think it allowed us very quickly to get the press behind us and get some of the big market constituents talking about us and do some real deals that were meaningful. All those things became something that allowed the platform to build a little bit of a life of its own, which is getting above the noise is some of the hardest stuff when you're starting new marketplaces in particular. And how do you think about on the asset side, how big is this market in a sense? You talk about only going after the best of the best. How do you think about the number of assets that you can actually capture and then offer to your investor constituents? It's not about number in terms of volume. It's about value. And we've taken that value and taken it down to a very small access point in the single digit dollars. All the categories that we're in, there's trillions of dollars of these assets out there. And even when you start to cut down just to the really high quality stuff where most of the returns have been, we're still talking an immense amount of asset value that would be comparable to some of the crypto market caps or larger that we're seeing being traded pretty regularly now. There's plenty of great stuff out there. We don't think things will live with us forever. There's a full life cycle of an asset where something will come on, it goes through an IPO process, it trades, and then it exits. Maybe it goes back to private hands or it goes back to a museum. All those are pieces of the puzzle. 
Do you think that either you could buy back assets on the platform or, or you'd have large institutional buyers who would end up buying the assets back? I think that's right. We're seeing exits pretty regularly at this point, even through just our, our retail consumer base. Mm -hmm. I think as that continues to grow and, and, and develop into some more institutional type players, you'll definitely see that be the case. And so it, it's an exciting part of the platform that it's, it's, you see less often. You take a company public, you don't often see them go back private. But in this world, it's actually pretty common and we think it's an important place of the, the life cycle. You talk about taking these quote unquote companies, you create companies out of these assets, fractionalize them, and then take them public on your platform. Do you, do you think of yourself as almost the investment bank for the, the, the collectibles or culture as an asset class? Yeah, I think it's more than that. I think the right analogy is a direct listing, like the Slack IPO. We're creating the vehicle that's going to be brought to market, like the company that does it. We are the investment bank. We don't really underwrite the deals the way an investment bank does, but I think we provide the marketing, the credibility, and the curation that's necessary. The actual exchanging and trading all happens through registered broker-dealers, but it's facilitated by the product that we've developed. That entire value chain of what you see in equity capital markets, we've largely productized and brought in the, the right regulations and brought in the right partners where we need to, to operate certain pieces of that puzzle in a way that makes it feel seamless to to the user, but all of the same exact processes that you have when taking a traditional company through a direct listing, you're basically having happen here as well. And that was one of the things Chris said really early on, which always stuck, was that this is to a certain degree like a media company too. It's not something where we realize that we can't or shouldn't be an educational platform too. Chris said this really early on, we, even when we start with cars and he just touched on it, they're celebrities. So you put a red Lamborghini Countach in a showroom in Soho, you're going to get people that walk in and want to have the conversation no matter what you're selling. And in our museum space, we're not selling anything. We just want you to come in and ask questions and be around this cool stuff. That for us is always wrap up all that complexity that Chris just described about the way this really does work and the Reg A Plus stuff and what we did to leverage the Jobs Act and the actual mechanics of how this works and turn that into an app that feels as comfortable as you using Instagram or any app that you use on a day-to-day -day basis. And that was the bring it to life epiphany that we had when it comes to the way that we think about this as an investment app, but as a consumer app the same way. How early on in the evolution of Rally did that key insight of making this touchable and feelable to the consumer come into play? Rob gets all the credit for it. He's the staunch defender of the investor and of the user. So he wouldn't let us get away with turning it into a finance app. And Max and I would have done that completely if, if we had our, our own way. I actually remember Rob's dad used to come by the office early on, and he always wears white button-down shirts, religiously. That's it. If you see him in not a white button-down shirt, true. something's wrong in the world. That's truth. So he used to come by and he said, is this thing really going to work? And, and he'd be like, if we can do what we want to do and keep honest and authentic to the product vision for it, there's no way this won't work. And it was such a fight at that point in time, because every time we try to do something, it would be another regulation or another conversation with a group of lawyers or another sort of hurdle that we'd have to address in terms of how could we make this thing work and provide the liquidity and provide the access and do so in a way where it doesn't feel like just a horrible process. And that tension, I think, is why it actually worked because we had one pull from the regulation and we had people pulling from this has to be real for the asset classes. And we had another person pulling for make this a beautiful product and an elegant solution. And I think that's what actually uh, yielded the actual outcome. Yeah, we definitely got lucky though too. We realized super early, we, we took the, the last $15,000 we had in the bank account early on and did a pop-up on uh, Wooster Street right before we launched. 
We found a place out of a garage door. It was set up as a gallery, and the floors had enough uh, had enough support for two cars. We put a old Porsche, a 55, I shouldn't say old, a 55 Porsche Speedster, which was one of our first assets, which is a crazy, for anyone to see that they recognize it immediately. And then we put a red Ferrari Testarossa in there too, a, a maroon color Ferrari Testarossa, and just opened the doors for a weekend. And that first 24 hours, we sent the email out to our friends and family, and a bunch of them showed up here and there. We got lucky in that it was a really nice weekend, late November weekend, which was abnormally nice out. And that two-day window, you have a couple of rappers come through, and then Scott Disick came, and like a bunch of random semi-celebrities come in, and they were asking questions about what we do and hanging out for 10, 15 minutes. Like, maybe this kind of works in a way that we can leverage the feel of being in some cool place and making things come to life and do it as a financial product too. So we wound up sticking it out and keeping that space for a little bit longer. We got a lot of our first investors from having that space. We got a bunch of press from having that space. So we realized that that visceral response and that immediate sort of response to seeing something amazing and then hearing about it. And then it's the last piece of it is you can put your money where your mouth is a little bit and put some money into it was the life cycle. And that became the way that we marketed everything going forward without even having a marketing department. It was always look around. If it's something that interests you, ask some questions. If you want to invest, that option exists as well. Were you guys like, holy crap, we just spent the last money in the bank account on a showroom? <laughs> Almost. But then we opened up to invest that one car, the Tesseros that was in there. And all of a sudden, one of the first investments was a stranger gave us $5,000. And I remember who that person is like to this day. And it's people that like the first users, the first investors we had that were investing in that space are still with us to this point. It's one of those things when somebody gives you real money and they don't know you, they just know the app and they know the asset it became very clear that this was going to be a possibility to turn this into a real marketplace. Was that that light bulb moment where you're like, okay, we may have something here? That might, Chris, there, were, there might have been some other ones too. You might remember better than me. There were a few along the way. That was one. Seeing somebody uh, on the train open the app was another one for me. Well, they were using train Wi-Fi to invest on Rally was shocking to me. That was another one. There was a few along the way. Chris might have different ones though. No, that, I think that's right. I remember that. You actually said that. I was Look, a stranger just did this. There's something here. This is for real. So that was, yeah, that was a great time. I want to hit on something that's so central to what you have done. And you've done an incredible job of balancing these two things. Behind the scenes, you have to do everything by the book, get through all the regulatory frameworks, processes. You hired the, the general counsel from Robinhood. You've had to be completely buttoned up like any normal financial services company would. Maybe even a slightly higher hurdle because people have to trust you with, with an asset that may seem more esoteric. But you've also balanced that by building an incredible community and engaging the community. Talk to us about how you've balanced those two things. What you've done over the last four or five years has really been instructional for many companies, both new alts companies, but also the incumbents, the Goldman Sachs's, the JP Morgan's of the world. How do you build community while also building a regulated financial institution? It's very tough. You know this, and we know this, and a lot of people don't realize that that community and followers or people who just do things with you are not the same. There's incongruence there. Building a real community means that you have people that they don't just go to bat for you on social media. They're people who have feedback. They want to see the product evolve. They want to be a part of the process. They let you know when you're doing something wrong. They come around when you do something without having to be incentivized to do it. And they just want to be a part of this build out. They become friends with each other, not just on social. They're meeting up in real life. All those things are things that we've been able to do without having to press people or push people to do it. When we think about the regulation and what we're doing. We always live within that regulatory construct. And everything we do is public domain to a certain degree because it's on the Edgar website. And you can search it on sec.gov and find out what's coming to the platform. And every other platform came out and literally copied Chris 
all the stuff that him and Max wrote word for word into their offering circulars. But that's expected because we know that that part of it is inalienable. It's not going to go away. It's something everybody's got to do. But the community part of it is something you can't replicate the same way. And that's what we've tried to do as best we possibly can is be engaged in the conversations, listen to feedback, actually work it into the product and work with the community that helped us get where we are in a way that we're not just throwing stuff at them and hoping that it sticks, you know? If you were to get asked the question by the CEO of a Wall Street bank, how do you build community as a financial services company? What advice would you give them? You don't like to already say you just you already messed up by saying as a financial services company, as somebody who wants to close the wealth gap, how do I work with you to make that happen? That would be the way you ask the question. What don't you have right now that you're looking for? How can I help you get to that point? And here are the products we're working on right now. What's your feedback on the direction that we're headed? There's no way to jumpstart that. There's no way to not do that organically and not build it from the ground up. We only have 50, 50, 52 or 53,000 Instagram followers right now. And we're not blowing the doors off, getting 20,000 likes every post. But every time we put something cool up, I get 20 texts. We get 11 DMs uh, directly as soon as it goes up. Everyone at the company gets their family texting them. That type of stuff is the community aspect. It lives in those pockets that you're not paying attention to, that you can't just put the people in the room and say, here's the thing, now be a part of our community. And what's driving the community? Is it, and, and I'm sure it's not you know just one thing, but is it the work you're doing to nurture that community, or is it the types of assets that you're getting on the platform and that's really driving the excitement from the community? I'll give you the quick answer and Rob will give you the good answer, but it's authenticity. We're here because we want to be here. We made this because we thought it needed to exist. We built it slowly over a long period of time, the hard way. That's authentic and that's a real story. Those 20 texts, Rob answers every single one of them and he's done it for four years straight. The platform has a voice because he gave it a voice and it's a real one. You, you can't manufacture that and you can't accelerate that. It just builds slowly. It happens in a way where it doesn't go away when things change a little bit. The more we layer on additional pieces of the conversation, the more interesting it gets and the more value you get from being a part of it. I've been a watcher of it as well because it wouldn't exist if Rob didn't cultivate it that way. And that's the truth. So seeing it from the inside, I have a real appreciation for how that's come together. He hit it on the head. It's one of those things where it's, there's parties that everybody wants to run to when you get those crazy parabolic moves. And we see it in NFTs. You see it in crypto. You see it in some collectibles. But then there's rituals and good habits and the things that we're trying to create, this responsible marketplace for the long term. We never looked at it early on as a cash grab. It wasn't a situation where our parents said, here's a Jackie Robinson collection. Now carry on the family business. There was no game plan and there was no instruction or template to do it. Not just building a, a marketplace for alternative assets, but how to take collectibles mainstream, how to do something that engaged that community and that emotion. So all of it was a slow burn. We've always looked at this as a long-term play. It's never, ever been something that we thought was going to kick off overnight. And we were super real with ourselves early on. The fact that like this business wasn't going to be a business for the first two or three years. It was going to just be that regulatory construct and making sure we had all the pieces in place to be able to build that community later on. The businesses that seem weird and people say no way are generally the ones that end up having staying power over time. Yeah, we got lucky on that because there was a lot of hats in the back and good job. It's going to be a huge business, but we will not give you any money or give you any intros or any connections. So we dealt with that really early on, too. I want to get to the constructs of your platform. Like many alts platforms, there's the asset and origination side, and then there's the investor distribution side. Thinking about both sides of your platform, starting on the asset side, you know, how do you think about sourcing underwriting high quality assets? And how do you think about certain asset classes? You mentioned a few, one that you started with like cars, classic cars to, to be specific, and then you've evolved offering other sorts of assets. How have you thought about the 
the evolution of the assets or origination side of the business? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little bit, Rob, because add some color, but very deliberately, we work with only the best in each of our asset classes. We bring a lot of data to the table. We have strict underwriting standards. I, I would consider us a passive buyer more than an active buyer. There's a set of, of criteria that we're looking for. And when things come to us that fit those criteria, we're a really great buyer for those things or a really great platform via which you can get liquidity for those things. I think with many of these alt investment platforms, they have two components to them. They have the assets and origination side, and they have the investor distribution side. How have you thought about building out the asset or origination side of this platform in terms of types of assets you're offering, the different asset classes you want to appeal to to investors? I think the, the answer is we've been very deliberate about it and very data-driven about it. We work with some of the best providers and experts in each of our asset classes. We put in place uh, a really strict set of underwriting standards of what we are going to allow on our platform, and, and we, we curate it very specifically. And then we consider ourselves passive buyers. Once we have those criteria, there's always a list of stuff that would fit it. And then as opportunities are presented to us, we rate them against those factors and then build our investment memos and our theses and operate from there. And I think our platform and us as buyers, we're a great way to get liquidity for people who have these exceptional assets. And I think more and more, this is becoming a viable alternative to, in some ways, a preferential alternative to other ways to either sell an asset in whole or even sell a portion of an asset. On that point, do you think that the sellers of these assets are more inclined to work with a platform that's democratizing access? Say it's a family whose parents or dad or mom was a professional athlete or was somebody famous and they want to sell that asset. Is there some appeal of them being able to share something they owned or their estate with the world? That, Without question. We have tangible examples of that. There's a lot of assets on our platform right now where the idea of going to an auction house and having to sign the one-year non-compete and having to hope that it sells at the right price with the right people in the room and hope that it goes to the right person, all that type of stuff gets taken off the table when you come to us, but more so for like our Honus Wagner car was an example. Another one of the Pokemon sets that we have is an example where when someone comes to us, it's the idea that something has a great story. They might want to even retain some of the ownership in it, but they want to give it to people who feel and act the same way they did when they got it because it's the idea that everyone's a collector at heart. There's this emotion, this passion that leads you somewhere. The investment element is the tag on that somebody gets really excited about once they start investing and diversifying. But when you have the Honus Wagner card and it's just one of so few and ours in particular has this ridiculous story, losing that to somebody who keeps it in a vault somewhere and it's one person and it may never show its face again is a little different when you come to us and it's thousands of people and it's in our museum or it's in your museum. You still have access to it. You get your money quickly. All the elements that we put in one place, they all kind of work with each other in that, in that respect. I want to hit on one thing on the asset side that you mentioned, Chris, which is that you actually do proper diligence. You write investment memos. You were a VC back in the day as well yourself. Is this very much like any other investment and you're going through the same process? You have the same type of diligence that we would do with more normal traditional assets as well? Dan, he just called it any other, like any other uh, investment, dude. That's messed up. That's messed I up. I know. That's what I was about to say. I was, I was like, I, I was like, the memos we used to do when I was a VC were not nearly 
nearly as good as the ones that the team does here on the Honus Wagner. I'll tell you that for sure. I used to write those memos too. So I'm talking about my own memos. There's a lot of data is the truth. If you know where to look for it and you build the models the right way. What's nice I like about, you know, collectibles and a lot of the ones that we work in, some, some things are one of one, obviously, but other things are one of a few. I think that gives you both the comfort of watching that trajectory of that asset, but also a little bit of the push and pull between that private market out there and our more public marketplace over here. That tension is a good one. I think they lead each other and they stay in, in the guidelines of each other. And I think that's something that keeps things responsible and, and working as they should and better than they originally could have. So what's the investment case for investing into these assets? How do you frame that for the investor? Like you mentioned, these are high quality assets. There is data out there. So what's the case for somebody investing into any of these assets on the platform? And how should they think about this in the context of their portfolio? The way I think about it, it's not a, a uh, either or. It's a great corollary to the other things that you're doing. And if you look at historically how these assets have performed in their uncorrelated generally they're uncorrelated from each other which is even more interesting and if you hold them where you're not pressured to buy or sell over a long period of time you tend to see uh, a great history of appreciation so as a part of a portfolio it's a really nice piece of it we're not telling anybody to go out there and stop doing equities, stop doing crypto, stop doing real estate, stop doing all the other things that they want to do. But here's a way to say if your portfolio is X, now you could put 5% of X or 10% of X or 2% of X into a whole basket of things that are even differentiated within each other and best in class. And that's been a strategy for the largest investors for a long period of time. And I think that's something we've now enabled for a much broader group of people. And then also to do it that in a way where it needs to resonate with the individual. We could have made this a fund. We didn't, right? We made it a marketplace where you make individual investments because people have a connection to the underlying asset. And when they do so, they make a better investor out of themselves. I'll tell you right now, I was at car shows with Jerry Seinfeld. We know about the same amount about Porsche. I love it. I'm all into it. I just didn't have the capital to buy 20, 30, 40 of them the way he did. You wake up 10 years later, he sells five of them for $25 million. And that's something where that opportunity was exclusive to somebody with his level of wealth. But the interest in that category is not, and the passion for that category is not, and the ability to be a good investor in those categories is not, unless you have the capital now to do so. Chris just described the biggest thing, too, is that, sorry to cut you off, but the idea of alternative assets being a part of a portfolio has always been part of the narrative. But what it's been is the 10 banks who control a lot of the inventory plugging it into an existing product, whether it was a 401k or it was a self-direct IRA, or, and it really meant a mix of bonds, real estate, a couple of things that were really in one very specific lane. So now with the on-ramps that exist, with the rallies of the world, but more so with the, the general understanding of what an alternative asset actually is, the idea of 1952 Mickey Mantle card or that 1955 Porsche as an alternative investment, instead of saying gold or one of these other elements, it makes way more sense to the group that cares about it most. So that's what exists right now that never existed before. I think you're hitting on a few really interesting points, the combination of your comments. One being investors can now access this asset class. And two is it's supplemental to some of the other things they would do. And you're creating the mechanisms to enable them to invest. Now, one potential question that people may have or pushback is, okay, so these are great assets maybe to buy and hold, but then 
if people need liquidity or want to sell for some sort of return, how do they do that? You've thought of some pretty creative and interesting ways to do that. How have you structured liquidity mechanisms on your platform, either to enable the sale of these assets so that investors earn a return, and sometimes in rather short period of time, uh, in some of the cases we've seen in the collectibles market, or through some sort of secondary trading mechanism? Yeah, I'll start. Rob could add some more color to it. But when we started this platform, we said to ourselves, if we couldn't solve for access and we couldn't solve for liquidity, it wouldn't work. We knew from day one that we had to build uh, a marketplace where people could access liquidity for selling the shares in a reasonable amount of time. And I think the other piece of, of it was we created this category and we had to educate people on what this type of investing is and introduce that liquidity in a smart way over a period of time. New marketplaces don't go from zero to completely liquid immediately. It's about what are the right stages along the way to get from investing in an IPO to understanding how that trading mechanism is going to work to building liquidity on top of it as it grows with the demand side. I think that's what we've done. We went in there day one and built an auction-based mechanism, which operates similar to the way you'd auction the whole asset, but just for the underlying shares. And I think that was a great first starting point for building responsible price discovery, responsible liquidity, and getting people uh, the ability to get in and out and reprice assets over time. As we continue to grow and scale the platform, we'll start to introduce more things that feel more like what you would expect from a financial market, more like what you're seeing in some of the crypto marketplaces. And I think that's something that will you know, continue to build on as the platform evolves. Yeah, and that's no secret that the, the biggest focus of this company right now and the biggest focus of the product is building out a really robust secondary market and that V2 of our product. I think that a lot of what we built to this point was always intentional and that we want to create a responsible marketplace, but we want to have enough robust and diversified inventory to create that real market where you can rotate out of one into another. You can make small bets across the board. You can do something where you watch from a distance and get involved when you feel the time is right with a really broad range of assets. We're at that point now. The next step is obviously getting more towards a continuous model and allowing for those exits. But at the same time, we've always thought about that diversification mechanism because what we have is the equivalent of a digital museum. And if I'm somebody who wants access to great assets and I have the means to purchase one outright and want it for my collection, I don't want to be in a position that I tell you, you can't have a Tyrannosaurus Rex. If it's on Rally and we have a great version of it and you want to make a bid to buy all the shares out, we have that capability now as well. That's something that we've been focused on a lot as more opportunities come to the platform, more people ask, can I buy the whole thing? You're both so passionate about these assets that you're talking about. So, so are the people who are investing into these assets. How, how do people think about the idea of liquidity when they may be so passionate about that asset and may never want to sell. How, how do investors balance those two things in this context? Because to some extent, it's very much an investment and there's a return. So either on one side, how do you think your investors are thinking about actually getting liquid when maybe they don't want to, or some people in these offerings that you have where people are purchasing fractional ownership amounts of these assets may want to get liquidity. And the second piece to that as well is, how do you think this will evolve over time in terms of giving people credit for investing in these assets and looking at this as their full net worth, getting to things like, how do you evaluate this when it comes to credit scores? Say some of these assets appreciate in a very big way. How do you think about those types of things? It's twofold. I'll give Chris the second part, but speak to the first part. I think that what we've always done is that we look at 
the best possible assets as leading the charge in terms of that's our marketing. That's the way we get people involved. But we also leave it in the app in a way that before it goes public, all the price comps are there, the story around individual assets, all those pieces are in front of everyone to pay attention to and to browse at their own rate and, and however they want to understand how it works. But we always looked at it as kind of passion-led investing. But what happens is that investors come to our platform, they'll make their first investment in the thing that it, that they really know best, or that they care about, or they recognize when they were younger, or it's the Michael Jordan rookie card. But then they get diversified really quickly as they start to become savvy investors. They start treating it more like a financial product really quickly. What we've seen is that when something like uh, our Mario Brothers, which is one of the best examples in the world, the 9.8 A-plus seal hang tab early version, it's one of the first five prints that ever came from Nintendo, that was a $125,000 initial offering on Rally. And it was something that the data suggested that this was a good buy. But also from a relevant standpoint, Mario is the equivalent of, you know, it's the Disney character. It's like the thing that will exist forever. It's got that relevance. A buyout offer came a week and a half ago at $575,000, which is an absurd return for a short period of time if you just look at it from the three-month window, four-month window. But when you zoom out and think about the relevance and think about what this is relative to the population of existing Mario Brothers games, our user base voted that down, that sale, at a really high margin, 76 or 77% said no. That's something that speaks to that savvy investor turning passion into a real investment thesis and understanding what the market looks like. And we're seeing way more of that now than we ever have. Some of these public markets investors might be looking at that going, wow, a 5x in, in a rather short period of time? This is not <laughs> investment better. advice, and it's also something that obviously the, it's an outlier. I'll say that for the short period. But that being said, it's also it's a really hot market right now. Video games got yeah. hot in a way that when people see a big auction result and start to hear more about it, then they dig a little bit deeper and understand the financial ramifications that go along with it. That's the finance piece that goes with that passion is something that happens really quickly. And these are the average age of an investor on rallies around 28, 29 years old. I'm older than that now, but even when I was like 28, 27, I wasn't savvy enough to understand I should go do a bunch of research on Mario Brothers. I would have bought every Mario Brothers game that existed. But in retrospect, everything looks a little bit easier. But these are becoming really savvy investors. Well, to that point, we wouldn't have known that the financialization of this space would have occurred. And you may not have had the venues like what you are creating to enable liquidity mechanisms to happen or the ability for people to buy and sell these assets. This is like right time, right place for this mashed up with people wanting to invest into things they really care about, which which brings us to a really interesting aspect of your platform, which is, you know, one question that people may have is, okay, so yes, I love a classic car, but part of the point of investing in it is so that I can actually own it and use it. In your case, that's not what's happening. I think you've articulated very clearly and, and well why it's, it's great for people to have access, even if it's $500 of a classic car or a, a Mario Brothers video game console. But how do you balance the physical world with the digital world in a fractional platform when these investors don't own these assets outright. And you've had some brilliant ideas. We've seen it on Twitter. You have some in the office today from some new deliveries. How do you think about that aspect of connecting with investors? There's a lot of things that we didn't agree on early. And it was always a finance versus the product piece. It was always like, how can we make sure both of those are handled in the most responsible way? The one thing everybody was on board with early was knowing that everybody was going to say, I don't get to drive it. And understand that a tactile element and bringing this to life was an important part of bridging that gap between asset 
and investment. I think that what we've always done is try to make sure that that tangible piece is available, whether it's our museum space here in Soho, which we're expanding and we're going to do a bunch more locations to do that roadshow and bring these IPOs to life before they go public, or it's the merch like what you and Chris are wearing right now, or the stock certificates that are these really one of few collectibles that we, we associate with really unique offerings like the Declaration of Independence will have one where it's the loose site and it's got the you know vintage parchment that everything's printed on and it's like a one of 400 individually numbered. All that stuff for us is a big part of what brings this to life because we do want to make sure that there's always the ability to have that tangible aspect that goes with the portfolio piece. What we've seen as we've expanded from cars to wine and watches to sports cards and memorabilia, a lot of times people find us where they might have you know, a PSA 2 version of Michael Jordan's rookie card. But when you have the PSA 10 version or you have the 86 Fleer wax box and it's got every individual car from the set, those pieces on Rally, those are the one of very few, the museum quality. It's something where you can have the lower value, emotionally connected, tangible version and keep that in your personal collection and then have the best of and put that in your portfolio and they complement each other. We're seeing way more of that as the platforms expand and as the user base has expanded as well. I think that's a great segue into, Chris, where do you think that the collectibles world goes from here and what's next for both Rally and the next stages of critical market infrastructure that needs to be built for this space? Yeah, it's a good question. I think a few things have happened. COVID has accelerated a lot of stuff. I think the understanding around digital assets, the understanding of building wealth in non-traditional ways has all really come into the mainstream. And that's why your podcast exists and is called what it is. This stuff is happening in real time. And I think that's fantastic. In the collectibles world, NFTs went from zero to 100 very quickly. And now it's a whole new class of collectibles that didn't exist before that will find its foothold. And now we're a whole new group and generation of people that in a different way, in the same way those Porsches enamored me when I was a child. The underlying elements of what create value here are as strong as ever and will continue to build, particularly in a world where there's just so much more abundance of everything, information, stuff, things to follow. I feel like quality will continue to reign. That's something that all of us can have a great appreciation for and will continue to derive value from uh, indefinitely. It just may happen and show its head in a few different ways. In terms of making this a true financial product and what still needs to happen, you know, just, just watch what we're doing. That's why we built this. In the beginning, it was explaining that a platform like this could exist, helping people understand the IPO process, getting them comfortable with digital securities versus owning the whole thing. Then it was about introducing liquidity and showing people how to trade, showing how people how values change, showing people how comps interact with that. Next will be building that continuous liquidity. I think as we continue to build out, as the, the market cap grows and the amount more people are interested in it, we'll start to see what we've seen in, in other new marketplaces and new asset categories, which are going upstream a bit from the, the B2C channels to the B2B2C channels to ultimately the B2B channels. I think continuing to do that responsibly and continuing to do that in a way where liquidity goes first and quality of assets and underwriting standards lead is what will make that come to fruition the way we believe it should. That's fantastic because it sounds like there's really a roadmap to institutionalization for both Rally and for this asset class, which I think is is so important to making this go mainstream. We've covered a lot of ground. I always end this podcast by asking guests what their favorite or most interesting alt investment is and why. I'm, I'm going to make that a little more specific for each of you guys and ask each of you what your favorite investment on Rally has been to date. So... Rob, do you want to go first? 
I'll jump in. I'll start with a uh, favorite investment of data. I have two, but the main one is, uh, and I've talked about this a lot, is that we have a Jaguar XJ220, which is this European supercar that never really got the attention of the Ferraris or the Lamborghinis because it was a Jaguar. And I think it's something that when you look at it, it's like an aha moment, but it's also the one that I had like a scale model when I was a kid that I put together. I went with my friend Guy to a place called Walt's Hobby Shop on 13th Avenue in Brooklyn, and it was $25. I think I had like $22, and he gave me the other three, and I bought it and put it together, and that was sitting in my childhood bedroom. It's somewhere in my parents' house somewhere. I got to go find it, but when we got the real one of that, it was very much like a, a full circle moment for sure, but then Dinosaurs on Rally was something that for us, I think all of us here was like a favorite to a certain degree because it does go full circle where it's the stuff I learned about in fourth or fifth grade and you weren't really paying attention to it, but you knew it was super interesting, learning the stories behind some of that stuff and then bringing it to life and watching it sell out super fast to a bunch of people who were just like us was really interesting to see. I mean, you know, he stole my thunder a little bit with the XJ220 because that's probably what I would have gone with it had he not said it. Uh, but a lot of this has been learning for, for us too as we get into new asset categories and seeing it. That Pele rookie card we've got, it's a postage stamp. I'll tell you right now, it is one of the prettiest postage stamps I've ever seen in my entire life. When that came into the office, like I, I, I really got the bug around, around the sports cards in a way I never had it before. It was transformational for me seeing that thing, how small it was, and you could, it just feels important for some reason. And that was transformative in terms of how I start to view it. And the passion I, I brought originally around the cars into some of the new asset classes for me, it brought it full circle and that was pretty special. You could see how excited other people get when we bring these new assets out and people are tracking it and talking about it on Twitter. Seeing that and when we introduce new things and really understanding the holy grail of a category is what does it for me. That, that's it. Chris is like, Chris is such a, Chris is the, one, is the smartest person I know without question, but he's also somebody where his investments are so dramatically different than mine. But the connective tissue is when you see something and you have the ability to invest in it, you hear the story behind it, it's impossible to ignore the fact that like that card, which is the most valuable card in all of soccer that relates to a specific time period, and you have people that are 19 years old investing in something from 1957 or 58 is this crazy full circle that makes it obvious that there's a lot of legs in this space and it'll keep going. Usually the best investments generally come from the best stories or the best storytellers. We even see that in venture capital. The best storytellers are generally the ones who are able to build great businesses because they're able to tell a story around the business. And while I, I won't conflate how cool investing in a company is to investing in a dinosaur head or the Declaration of Independence. I, I made that mistake earlier on the podcast. I won't make it again. But <laughs> it, that is a very cool and, and powerful aspect of all of this is like the stories of how that connects you. And I'm sure how it connects all the different rally members. I certainly remember that I bought a, a part of a dinosaur head on rally. Uh, I don't remember which stock I bought or when I bought it necessarily, but I certainly remember that dinosaur head. So uh, yeah. that, that Di dinosaur is a really important piece of all this. I will say not investment advice, but dinosaurs are definitely cooler than a random ticker symbol. I'll be the first to, to jump in and say that. There's very few of those dinosaur heads, so <laughs> there's definitely true. scarcity in that, and that's an element of all of this, right? So they're, yeah, they're not minting any more any more Triceratops heads. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> That's a perfect way to end this podcast. So you guys have done an incredible job for the space. You've really been a, a leading light for all of this. And, and I'm really excited to see what you guys continue to do over time, leading the way with both the financialization of this asset class, but also the community and all the things you're doing to engage the community. So th thanks, Chris and Rob, for, for coming on the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. 
Thank you for having us and then for all that you're doing for it as well. We really appreciate the attention you're bringing to the asset class, all the analysis. It's uh, it's super meaningful and, and we appreciate it. For real, much appreciated. Well, I have great inspiration from you guys, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com. And follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at Goes Alt. Thanks a lot and have a great day. We're going-